from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. You're listening to Facing Evil, a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the show and do not represent those of iHeartRadio or Tenderfoot TV. This podcast contains subject matter which may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Facing Evil. I'm Yvette Gentile. And I'm Rasha Pecorero. This week, we are covering a story that is incredibly close to my heart. Yes, this week we are talking about Brandon Tina, a transgender man whose story was dramatized in the 1999 movie Boys Don't Cry, starring Hilary Swank. And that movie was inspired by a 1994 Village Voice article about the murder of Brandon Tina, which was written by Donna Minkowitz. And Donna will be our guest on today's episode. Yes, I'm very humbled and honored for Donna to be with us today. She wrote that article back in the early 1990s at a time when the stories of trans people weren't really being covered in the media. Donna's article is an in-depth expose on Brandon, on his community, and about what happened to him. But the story does not end there. Donna has had a long and fascinating journey with the case of Brandon Tina. And we are going to get into all of that today. Yes, I'm super excited about having Donna on the show. But now our producer, Mr. Trevor Young, is going to walk us through today's case. A gruesome triple murder 19 years ago left emotional scars on the people of Humboldt, Nebraska. Three people killed, including Brandon Tina, a 21-year-old transgender Nebraskan who the convicted murderer now sits on death row for. He tried to be truthful to the kids he was with. He was put down. The defendant, Jan L. Lauder, is hereby sentenced to the penalty of death for the murder and the first-degree murder of Tina Brandon. Brandon Tina was a 21-year-old transgender man who was killed on New Year's Eve of 1993 by two men in Humboldt, Nebraska. Brandon was raised in Lincoln, Nebraska, and grew up in Catholic school, but he frequently got into trouble. In one instance, for trying to alter the school uniform to look more masculine. In November of 1993, Brandon moved to Humboldt, Nebraska, where he started dating 18-year-old Lana Tisdall. Brandon presented as male to Lana and her friends, who had no idea he was transgender. Then, Brandon met John Lauder and Tom Neeson. 
John was an ex-boyfriend of Lana, and both men were ex-convicts. But the four started to hang out together. On December 19th, Brandon was arrested for forging checks. And when they arrested him, the police put him in the women's section of the jail. This was the first time that Lana realized he was trans. After Brandon was bailed out, the story of his arrest was published in the local paper, and Brandon was outed as transgender to this new group of friends. Late on the night of Christmas Eve in 1993, Tom Neeson and John Lauder began to harass Brandon about his gender presentation. They reportedly grabbed Brandon and pulled his pants down, forcing Lana to look at his genitals. Then, they forced Brandon into John's car and drove him out to an isolated area where they raped and beat him. Afterwards, they threatened to kill him if he told anyone, but Brandon did report the crime to the local sheriff, who refused to arrest Lauder and Neeson. But the two men learned about Brandon's attempt to report them, and they decided to retaliate. On the night of December 31st, Tom Neeson and John Lauder found Brandon at a neighbor's house. The two then shot and stabbed Brandon Tina, along with two other people staying at the house. John Lauder and Tom Neeson were arrested that afternoon. Both men were eventually found guilty of first-degree murder. As of today, Tom Neeson is serving a life sentence, and John Lauder is still on death row. The murder of Brandon Tina became the subject of the 1999 movie Boys Don't Cry. It also helped galvanize the burgeoning transgender rights movement. And so, who was Brandon Tina? Why did law enforcement fail to protect Brandon? And what does this story tell us about the dangers that trans people face each and every day? All right, so today we have a very special guest with a long and compelling history with this case. Joining us now to talk about Brandon Tina is author, activist, journalist, Donna Minkowitz. You may know her writings from The New York Times, Salon, The Village Voice, or you may know some of her many books, including Ferocious Romance, and one that I am obsessively reading as we speak, Growing Up Gollum. Um, Donna, I know that you've been covering the story of Brandon Tina since the very beginning in 1994. And, you know, there's so much to discover. And I know it's been a long journey for you. So with that being said, welcome to Facing Evil. Rasha and I are so very honored to have you here. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to be here. We're so honored that you're here, Donna. Yes, yes. So Donna, before we start talking about Brandon, can you tell our listeners like when you first started writing and why you started writing? Gosh, I don't know if I should account my bad attempts at poetry in fifth grade. <laughs> yes, you should count that. <laughs> I've always really loved writing and reading. It was the thing that made me happy. Um, my childhood was a little rough, but my mother always really encouraged me to read and write, you know, and then just like creating words that were full of beauty and mm. trying to make something like that. It really, really made me happy. And then when I got to college and I started getting more politically active, I wanted to write things that I was passionate about. There were a lot of things that seemed really uh, unjust to me and 
you know, I wanted to try to, um, to change them if I, if I could by writing something. I was reading your book, like I said, and I know that the Village Voice, you know, the newspaper was very big in your household. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. My whole family loved it. So it was free back then. It was like nothing else in the media, you know, whether in New York or anywhere else. It had queer stuff back then. And this is the 1970s <laughs> when there wasn't queer wow. stuff anywhere outside of a, a like a gay or lesbian newspaper, um, certainly not on TV. You know, they had a lot of left wing stuff and they used dirty words, which no other media <laughs> did in those days. And my family mm -hmm. really liked to read the personal ads, um, which were... <laughs> Which were like much better than like those kinds of things are like dating profiles are today. They were just like very artfully written. There were no photos. So it had to all be in the writing. I love that. I know. And when did you start at The Village Voice, Donna? Well, I started doing some freelance pieces when I was 22. I was having a really bad time in grad school for comparative literature, but I started I started doing some book reviews for The Voice. Then I, then I left my grad school program. I moved back to New York City and I became a, um, a freelance copy editor at The Voice, which meant I got to be in the office and try to talk to editors. And there was one editor who was like in charge of all the queer stuff at The Voice. So I was like, I'm going to woo that man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get my way in. Yeah. So I did that. And then gradually I was covering a lot of LGBT stuff at the paper. So on that point, Donna, did you know about Brandon Tina's rape and then subsequent murder back when it happened? Or is it because you were asked to do the story for The Village Voice? I was asked to do it actually not that long after the murder happened. Mm. I think um, the New York Times um, just printed an AP story about Brandon's rape and murder. And I guess he was murdered in 1993. And it was probably early in the new year that my editor showed me this AP story. And we both thought, like, oh, my God, this is an intense and amazing story. I was really happy that he wanted me to go and, uh, and cover it to Nebraska. Oh, so you actually went to Nebraska to cover it. Oh, yeah. Wow, I didn't realize that. I didn't know that either. Yeah, I went to Nebraska. So I don't drive. I still don't drive. It's kind of crazy. The New Yorker, New Yorker in you. <laughs> um, I knew this uh, lesbian documentary filmmaker named Susan Muska. So she came with me. The Voice paid for some of her travel expenses and we went out to Nebraska. Brandon Tina grew up in Lincoln, mm -hmm. and he was murdered when he was uh, living for a couple months in a very small town, very conservative small town called Humboldt. Right. So Susan and I went and interviewed people in both Lincoln and Humboldt. This would be early 1994. Wow. So right after he was murdered. Right after he was murdered. It was pretty intense going to the town, except for one of Brandon's girlfriends in the town uh, was Lana Tisdale. Mm -hmm. And except for Lana and her family, 
No one we spoke to, you know, expressed sadness or regret that Brandon had been killed. It was just a very, it's a very conservative town. I looked very butch in those days. And so (laughs) did, so did Susan, who was traveling with me. Right. And (laughs) everyone knew who we were. You know, we were like the, the lesbian journalists from New York. The lesbian mafia. <laughs> but anyway, we uh, we we did talk to people, and we uh, we interviewed a lot of people, and we also spoke to um, Brandon's mother and a lot of women who Brandon had previously dated, right, in Lincoln, and also Brandon's gay cousin Maury. Oh, right. Who certainly told us a lot of stuff that we we hadn't known. Wow. Wow. And I don't know if you've seen photos, but he was cute. He, I think, yeah. um, I think Hillary Swank did a good job of pulling off the handsomeness factor. Oh, in that I movie. couldn't agree more. I, I think she did an amazing job. And speaking about, you know, boys don't cry. This is a question that I had for you when um, the director of the movie Boys Don't Cry said that she was inspired by the piece that you wrote. How did that make you feel? Well, it made me feel really good because I think it's a brilliant movie. I mean, I know that a number of trans activists um, do have some problems with the movie, mm-hmm. and I think that's their right. I think their opinion about about how it's portrayed is more important here than mine. But Kimberly Pierce, the director, actually, unfortunately, did not say that for a long time. For many years, right? For many years, yes. For many years, and... I I would have appreciated hearing it because um, actually at the time my voice piece came out, a number of people from Hollywood approached me to option the story, but nobody really did. So I was like, oh, okay, okay. But anyway, it's fine. You know, no one has property rights in the truth. They did not have to pay me. It was not my story. And, right, um, right. I think it's a brilliant movie. I agree. Boys Don't Cry was absolutely a brilliant movie. And I, I love that you can you can tell, obviously, you don't have hard feelings about Kimberly, you know, basically yeah, right. making Boys Don't Cry. I mean, maybe she should have optioned it. I think, you know, she didn't have a lot of money in those days. I didn't have right. a lot of money in those days. So it's like, where was the money going to come from, you know? From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. (laughs) 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. So going back to your piece in The Village Voice, you know, Love Hurts that came out in 1994, but then you did a retraction in 2018 called How I Broke and Botched the Brandon Tina Story. And I have to tell you, Donna, that is incredibly brave because you didn't have to do that. I I would love to know why. Why did you decide to write all these years later that particular piece? Well, it had really been weighing on my mind for a long time. My original article was criticized a lot, hmm. you know, by, by trans activists and people on the side of trans activists um, and academics. And I was defensive about this criticism for quite a while. Yeah. Yeah. You know, at first I didn't understand because I thought, well, my piece was on Brandon Tina's side. Right. And it was only, you know, as the years passed and I started educating myself more about trans issues Hmm. um, that I realized how ignorant I had been. I mean, back then in 1993, I thought many people sort of in the like the cultural way that trans people were portrayed, I thought that if someone was trans, that meant that they surgically altered their body and they had um, hormone treatments. I didn't understand that trans people were just trans and they didn't have to, you know, prove it by doing anything to their body. And I think also a lot of us who were um, cis gay and lesbian people were scared of the trans movement um, for some really, really wrong reasons. Um, But we had this mistaken idea that trans people were really gay and lesbian people who wanted to be like considered normal. So they were going to be like trans straight people and they were going to say like, oh, we're normal. We're just in the wrong body. Ah. So I mean, I I was very ignorant. I didn't know that there are, you know, lesbian trans people and gay trans people and bisexual trans mm-hmm. people. It has nothing to do with whether you're cis or trans. Um, there's still all kinds of possible sexual orientation configurations. Yeah. But I think I was motivated by this as well. So in my original piece, I kind I mean, I, I wanted to honor what I thought of as Brandon living as a man and portraying themselves as a man. Mm -hmm. But I didn't, I didn't understand that Brandon in fact identified as a man and should be treated as such. So I, I sort of took Brandon as a cis lesbian who, you know, who, wow, wanted to live as a man. Wow. That Mm. was very bold. Um, I didn't understand that he was just being himself. So I do really regret the way I wrote the piece. I had been wanting to apologize for years 
I actually sort of apologized quietly. Uh, <laughs> in the year 2014, I was promoting a book and I was interviewed in a, a queer paper in San Francisco. And they said, do you have anything else to say? And I said, oh, I would like to apologize to the trans community. <laughs> but, but not that many people read it, you know, and Aww, I kind of right. wanted to do it in a, in a big way. Well, that was a big way, Donna. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, Donna, I just have to commend you, you know, because not a lot of people would do that. They would just, you know, blow it off, you know, but you, you know, you obviously thought deeply about this and evolved, right? And made an effort to to write another story about, you know, how you, how you felt, how you have changed, you know, because, you know, back in the 90s, it was, right, it was a different time. We didn't really know all the things that we know now, you know, and so when we think about Brandon Tina, like, it's almost 30 years, you know, since his murder. Do you think that society has evolved since then? I guess I would have to say, like, yes and no, like mm -hmm. a really strong yes and a really strong no. You know, culturally, the fact that there are musicians who are out and trans and authors and some films and TV um, and actors who are out, that's wonderful. Yeah. I think the level of knowledge is, is dramatically greater. But on the other hand, you know, we have things like those far right people really going after trans people viciously, both saying that, you know, trans people are groomers and, you know, passing, passing all these laws like, you know, parents who, parents who support their trans kids, you know, can be investigated for child abuse. Just Which is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I think it's a very frightening time to be a trans person you know, despite all the advances. I agree, Donna. And I think it's so important, just as you did, you know, back in 2018 and, you know, years earlier, you showed up as a trans ally. And that's what we want to be here. And I hope that the world can evolve and catch up as well. And I think we, you've proven that we have to use our voices for good, right? And I would like to know, you did say, you know, you've been wanting to, you know, to apologize to the trans community for a long time. What made you start to think differently? Was there someone in your life that inspired you or did you like what what made it change for you personally? Well, one thing was someone in my life, um, actually not not a trans person, um, the woman I married. Um, <laughs> Karen. My wife, Karen. Um, she's a therapist now, but she had been an academic in gender studies. And, oh. you know, when she was teaching me all this stuff, I knew that she kind of was better informed about trans people than me. And we would talk about it. And I was like, oh, oh, she said that. She said that. And, you know, I started looking at her books and thinking about things she said and then I really started making an effort to um, to educate myself more, getting to know more trans people. I teach writing sometimes. I teach memoir writing classes. And I had a student who also worked with me privately 
um, who was a trans musician working on a memoir. And working with him helped me helped me learn a lot as well. That's so beautiful. Yeah, that's, you know, I can say the same. It's like, I'm so lucky, you know, to have my sister because, you know, just having people in your circle that help to educate you makes you a stronger ally, right? So your wife, you know, is is taught you and different people, different encounters that you've had in your life. What would you tell people or tell our listeners, like what avenues could they take to educate themselves, you know, to, to find out more about the trans community? Just thinking about this trans musician um, who I worked with, who was my student, working with him on his memoir, I saw so strongly, you know, he's different from me. That's something I, I had to learn. Nope, he he is not a lesbian. Mm-hmm. Though he's someone who was assigned female at birth, you know, who is attracted to women. He's no, he's he's not. He's different <laughs> from me. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's hard to realize that not everyone is like you. Right. <laughs> not being yourself <laughs> everywhere. And some people are genuinely different from you. They have different desires and different needs. So um, yes, getting getting to know trans people and also reading. There's a lot of great essays out there and books by um, trans writers and trans academics. Oh, there's an excellent book called Brilliant Imperfection by mm-hmm. a trans writer named Eli Clare. Oh, I haven't heard about that one. Great book. He is trans and he is also disabled. And the book is kind of about how to come to acceptance about things about yourself that you might not love or you wish <laughs> you wish might be different, but how to do that and still love yourself. So I find that a, a really helpful book. There's a, I believe it's called the, the Transgender Studies Reader, or maybe it's now mm. called the Trans mm. Studies Reader, but mm. that, was, that was excellent and really uh, informed me a lot. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. So circling back to to Brandon, and I know, of course, <laughs> we cannot turn back time. We can't change what happened. 
and I know this is a very hard question for me to ask you, but so if Brandon would have been murdered in 2023, or even if Brandon had reported the rape that happened in 2023, do you think things would have ended up differently? That's a really good question. And I think maybe the key further question is where, depending on Um, where it happened. mm -hmm. I mean, if it had happened in in Humboldt, Nebraska, I honestly don't know. I think it would have been at least a little bit better. I mean, back then when he reported the rape, the sheriff called him an it and said, you know, like, what am I supposed to do? You know, first you seem to be a boy, then you seem to be a girl. The sheriff used his own discomfort about Brandon being trans as an excuse not to find the rapists and prosecute uh, the rape. Nissen and Lauder, the rapists had told Brandon that if he reported the rape, they would kill him. And that's what they did. So I think that sheriff is, uh, is really to blame. But I think if Brandon, um, you know, were a young person today who was murdered, I think he would be identified as a trans man in the press, Mm -hmm. um, as did not happen then. I mean, it's, it's hard because I mean, of course, trans people are still being killed, very widely, uh, killed. So it's still terrible, even if some of them might be identified who as who they are um, right. after their deaths. Yeah, you're so right. You know, it's it's like we've come so far, but yet we're still in the same place, so to speak, you know. But if Brandon Tina would have been killed in 2023, say in San Francisco or or California, maybe it would be very different, right? Because so many people that are more awake and care about the queer community, right? Yeah, there there are so many more people who who care. I think the the sad part is unfortunately the murders the murders do keep happening. I did want to say, you know, thinking about the anti-trans movement today, mm-hmm. the election of Donald Trump in 2016 really threw me for a loop. I had not thought that things were in danger of going so far backward. And even though he um, he was not reelected in 2020, the fact that we have this huge far right movement now targeting um, trans people and queer people, it's a little hard sometimes to square that with my day to day life as right. someone who lives in a town where I don't think someone's going to beat me up for being gay. But knowing that people are passing these anti-trans laws all over the country, it's kind of hard keeping the two things in your mind at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, it can be hard to compartmentalize it. I can see that. You know, we've been developing Facing Evil since we did Root of Evil back in 2019. And one of the first cases, I knew we had to speak about Brandon. I knew that. And it's because I wanted more people that didn't see Boys Don't Cry to know about transgender issues or things that are going on in the world. You were making me think of two years ago here in the, um, the upstate New York town um, where I live, we had a, a queer and trans liberation march that I was one of the organizers of. Uh-huh. And we had a speak out afterwards. Mm. And the thing that blew me away was the kids. 
All of these teenagers, these non-binary and trans teenagers getting up to speak about themselves. And they made me so happy. All of these young people wanting to be who they were, (laughs) changing the nature of how gender is understood as we speak. I I just love them. Hmm. Like you said earlier, you know, the more that you educate yourself and you get to know people and you read and you do your research, you know, you find that we are all so similar in so many ways, you know, and just by me, you know, reading your book, um, Growing Up Gollum, like it was so fascinating to me because I could see parts of, you know, my mother's life and my grandmother's life, like through your book, you know, and and how you were raised. Um, So we all, you know, have a little bit of each other in us. You know, that's what I truly believe. Yeah, we do. My memoir writing students, they're often afraid, like, why would anybody be interested in my life? And I tell them, Actually, I think every single human being's life is interesting. Everyone yes, has an absolutely. interesting life. You know, you just have to write it in such a way that other people can see it. But I think, um, to your point, that we can identify with something in anyone else's mm-hmm. life. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be exactly the same as ours, but we do have very similar basic feelings and needs you know, even if our lives have been very different. Absolutely. Donna, if you could please, with everything that you know about Brandon Tina, after going to Nebraska and meeting his family and covering the story, what can you tell us? What did you learn covering Brandon Tina's story and who he was as a human being and what his legacy is now? When I was starting to work on my apology article in 2018, I went back over a whole box of notes I had from 1993 when I was writing the first piece. And I was shocked to see a number of things about Brandon that I had forgotten. Mm. He was only 21 when he was murdered and he had wanted to be a commercial artist. So I had forgotten that, Mm. had no idea he was interested in art at all. Also, his mother said that he was really outspoken in the conservative Catholic high school that he went to. Mm -hmm. You know, she said if the priest said one thing, he said, you know, he would say the opposite. And (laughs) I actually recently found out that it was specifically he was criticizing Catholic hierarchy teachings about homosexuality and contraception. I had forgotten this. I had ignored that in my article. And I think in 1993, it was difficult to access transgender health care, I think, in Nebraska or anywhere else. But Brandon tried. He went to gender clinics and he tried to avail himself of what was out there. But it was not easy um, for him. And something we haven't mentioned, you know, his family was poor He never had a high-paying job. He often didn't have a job. His mother sometimes was on disability. They lived in a trailer park. Their friends were also poor. So it was was particularly, I think, not easy for him to access those kinds of services. So I guess I want to remember him as someone 
someone who wanted to be an artist, Mm -hmm. someone who was outspoken. And I also remember he wrote these kind of really like mushy and sweet and romantic cards for his Mm -hmm. last girlfriend, Lana. For Lana. Yes. Yes. And Donna, I have to thank you for your words in all of your books, all of your different articles, but especially what you've written about Brandon and what you have done with your voice. And I have to thank you for your bravery and inspiring all of us to use our own voices and tell our own stories. Because just like you said to your writing students, like everyone has a story. And I think that's how we can all somehow find common ground and live as cheesy as it sounds in a more beautiful world. (laughs) But thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here, Donna. I know this is going to be great episode and our listeners are going to just be fully engaged because you have so much wisdom, so much kindness, so much heart, uh, and we so appreciate your time. Thank you. It was really great to be with you both. Thank Thank you you. so much, Donna. This week's message of hope and healing is for Brandon Tina, who was adamant about living life as the person he truly was in nearly impossible circumstances. Brandon Tina was headstrong, outspoken. What kind of impact could he have made? We'll never know. He shouldn't have had to lose his life or live with the fear and abuse. But his death helped pave the way for so many others after him to live their truth. And so this week, we move onward and upward by recognizing those who face similar struggles. If you're on that path today, then we see you and we honor you. Onward and upward. Imua. Imua. Well, that is our show for today. We'd love to hear what you thought about today's discussion and if there is a case that you'd like us to cover. Find us on social media at Facing Evil Pod or email us at facingevilpod at tenderfoot.tv. And one request, if you haven't already, please find us on iTunes and give us a good review and a good rating if you like what we do. Your support is always cherished. Until next time. Aloha. Facing Evil is a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The show is hosted by Rasha Pecorero and Yvette Gentile. Matt Frederick and Alex Williams are executive producers on behalf of iHeartRadio, with producers Trevor Young and Jesse Funk. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV, alongside producer Tracy Kaplan. Our researcher is Carolyn Talmadge. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Find us on social media or email us at facingevilpod at tenderfoot.tv. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio or Tenderfoot TV, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4. 
Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.